You know that phrase, close but no cigar, that you say when someone almost gets something? Well, guess what? Today, I'm going to tell you the story of where that phrase comes from. In the mid-1900s, fairground stalls in the U.S. gave out cigars as prizes, so if you didn't quite get one, they'd say that. Or that, anyway, that's where people think it came from. So isn't that exciting? That's the reason we all walk around and say, close but no cigar. Exciting? Nah, I mean, not really. Who actually says that phrase? And if you do, you just say it a few times as a peripheral thing. It hardly makes the origin story worth the time you're putting into watching this video. Okay, well, what if I were to instead tell you the origin story of why you can think one way but feel another? As in, I know I shouldn't do that, but I really want to. And what if that same story laid out the reason why you can hear so much about God and about angels but never get to see them face to face? And if that same story laid out a map of our own personal struggles and just happened to be one of the most popular ancient narratives in the world, well then, I think we've got a story that's worth telling. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Swedenborgian Life. It's going to get biblical today. I, people on one side are saying, why are you talking about the Bible? It's not true. Other people are saying it's true. Don't add to it. There's a middle ground. For the people who don't think there's anything to the text of the Bible, is, couldn't there be a reason why it's so pervasive and why it continues to, despite advances in science and everything, move people so deeply? What is that? And the people who say, you know, we know what the Bible is. Don't try to reinterpret it. Why is it important? You look at the text of the stories, this one included, it's got to be a bit baffling. Why is this stuff? How is this the Word of God? What does that mean? These are strange stories. Where's the lessons in them? We're going to tease it out for you, man. That was Swedenborg's main gig. I mean, you, you hear a lot about afterlife, that kind of stuff from him. He started doing this stuff, and we're going we're gonna to get at what he was getting at right when he kicked it off. My name is Curtis Childs. Sorry it took me so long to introduce myself. I was going on that rant. Uh, also, you can get your questions and comments in if you want to be a part of the show. Uh, if anything's not making sense, hit us up, and we'll answer them at the end. Okay, let's take a look. We're going to do the internal sense or the meaning of Noah's flood, and we're going to begin in part one, the common parable. Surprise, I said the common parable, the screen says a common parable. So already there's like mystery. Why did he say that? Was, was it an error or what did he mean to? We'll tell you at the end of the show. And I'm going to say that we are going to spend a regular amount of time, like this is going to be a regular length show. However, we are just flying through this story. If you really want to look at all the details of the meaning in this, according to our friend Swedenborg, you can download his books, check out Secrets of Heaven, Volumes 1 and 2. This story actually spans the, the, the end of 1 and into the beginning of 2. There you can read it. It's much, a lot we're leaving out here. However, if that weren't enough for you, we, even if you did go and read all that Swedenborg about the meaning of this story, according to Swedenborg, you are just scratching the surface there because he says he, what even what he wrote about this story is just a little teeny uh, skim off the top of the actual depth of meaning of the whole thing. So basically, we're giving you barely anything. Thanks for tuning in. And what I want to do is 
in the whole intro was trying to convince people why this is relevant to talk about this story, that this story is actually the origin of the things I talked about. But even beyond that, it is the flood story is relevant beyond just a biblical crowd because there are flood stories everywhere. There, this, this same story, very similar stories, play out across cultures. And why is that? Let's take a look. If you, maybe you haven't heard that before. Maybe this is your first time hearing it. Let's hear about one, a very similar story uh, to this Noah's flood, but from a different tradition. The Greeks and the Romans had a number of variations on a flood myth. Probably the most well-known is Ovid's account uh, from the very early first century AD in the Metamorphoses, and it's the story of uh, Deucalion and his wife Pyrrha. And in this story, um, Jupiter, the king of the gods, decides that something has to be done because the human race has declined over time from a golden age to silver to bronze to iron and things have gotten bad Uh, so that human beings are uh, not treating each other well there is warfare and bloodshed and and Jupiter has to bring it to an end but he promises the gods there will be a new human race to replace this so Uh, He eventually decides on flood as the method, and flood will wipe out the human population, but Deucalion and his wife Pyrrha are pious. Uh, They are righteous people, and they do survive on a boat in the flood, and eventually as the waters start to recede, this boat lands on a mountain, Mount Parnassus, and they find there a temple to the goddess Themis. She's a goddess of law. And at this temple, they go and they pray, as, as they are pious people, and they uh, ask for, how do we restore the human race? And they're given a riddle of an answer from the goddess. And she tells them um, that they should cover their heads, and as they walk away, throw the bones of their great mother behind them. They're not sure what to do with this. They don't want to disturb the bones of of their mother. Um, And they eventually realize that the earth is their mother, Mother Earth, and the bones are stones. And so as they walk away, they throw stones, and these turn into people, and the earth is repopulated. And as Ovid says, that's why human beings are hard and enduring. So this story has parallels as you can see to the Genesis story, right? It's human beings are in bad shape. There is a need to uh, eradicate them. Um, There is saving people who are good, Noah and his household. The boat lands on a mountain and then there's a repopulation. Um, In this version, Ovid's version, it's definitely uh, you know, the flood is a similarity, but I, I think a lot of what he's focusing on here really is a rebirth, a, a renewal of humanity. And that also seems to be, though, a, a shared theme, not just the, the common features of flood, but sort of an underlying theme, but in a, in a different sort of context. 
There's a lot of similarities in that story, and some people will take that and point to it to say, see, this is not true. I mean, the Bible just copied off that story. They copied off that story that in, in certain conversations that seemed to be a detractor from the religious truth of the message, but in Swedenborg, that actually is, is proof positive. I mean, he's saying, not proof positive, that's a little strong, but it's a, it's a reinforcement, because he's saying this this flood story, as we're going to get to, is about this event in human history and in the human psyche that we all deal with. And all these ancient cultures, they had a similar connection to the language of correspondence or metaphorical storytelling. So this is that same, that same event echoing, reverberating in all these different traditions. So we just thought we'd show you one to show... This is a story that applies to all of humanity, not just... Uh, the people that are following the biblical tradition, but there's a lot. The way the biblical one is written holds all these secrets in them that we're going to look at now. And to set the scene, it's impossible for us to tell this story without one of the most important characters. And you might think, oh, that's Noah. He's going to... Actually, no. This is a character that is called the remnant. And this is a Swedenborgian term, and we're going to explain what it means, and it's important to introduce it because the flood story is essentially the story of the threatening and saving of the remnant. So this is Secrets of Heaven 561. To explain what a remnant is, it is not just the good and true things that we learn out of the Lord's Word from the time we are small and that become stamped on our memory. It is also all the states that rise out of those things, such as a state of innocence from babyhood, a state of love for our parents, siblings, teachers, and friends, a state of charity toward our neighbor and compassion toward the poverty-stricken and needy. In short, it is all states of goodness or truth. These states, along with the good and true things imprinted on our memory, are called a remnant. The Lord preserves them in us, hiding them away in our inner being without our slightest awareness and carefully separating them from the things that are our own. In other words, from evil and falsity. And he continues, The Lord preserves all these states in us in such a way that not even the least significant of them is lost. This I learned from the fact that every one of our states from infancy to extreme old age not only remains in the other life, but even returns. When we relive them, they are identical to the experience we first lived through in the world. So there's a, you know, 1750s uh, mention of what's now called the life review. This happens not only with the good and true things etched on our memory, but also with any state of innocence or charity we have experienced. In addition, each and every one of our states of evil and falsity or malice and destruction remains and return or delusion remains and returns as well in all its minutest detail. And when the latter states come back to us, the Lord tempers them by means of the former. All of which shows that if we had no remnant, we could not help being damned for eternity. If you want to get serious about it, next week we're going to talk about, oh no, two weeks from now, three weeks, something like that, we'll talk about what that damned for eternity means. However, the remnant. Did you pick up on that as a character? If the explanation with words doesn't do it, let me show you what mine is, okay? The remnant, this is everything, all the good memories, all the good states throughout your life, happiness, peace, innocence, camaraderie, everything that is good that has come through in your life. No matter how rough of a life you've had, even if you didn't have an idyllic sort of childhood, anything kind someone's done for you, all this, even little things from people, from strangers, little bits of, of human compassion, this is all saved up inside of us. Every one of us is walking around with a remnant inside of us. And we're gonna, as we're going to see now, that that remnant is not only 
important because it's nice to go through, God uses that to lead us to goodness. It's, it's saved up. It's like a little store of ammunition, or ammunition is a pretty warlike example. It's like a little store of food. So outside when all the crops fail, when things are hard in life, you can pull this out and be nourished by it, and God, e- and, and God even can take it. And when we are going, like we're being reformed, we're going through these, our, when our evils, our falsities are coming out, this remnant is brought out to be like, wait, remember that life is good. Remember what love feels like. Remember what the truth is like. And that's what pulls us up and out uh, back into the light. So this flood story is a story of when the remnant was almost destroyed. So let's take a look how in part two. All right. Spooky. All right, we'll get to that uh, video in a second. Uh, this is the story. We're going to start with the historical in these two, and then we'll get to the personal in I, Noah. So both both are worth knowing, and both affect all of us now, as we'll see. Is this in a historic... So that may make no sense. That may be gibberish. What I mean is Swedenborg says there is an internal sense to these Bible stories. You can see our other episodes about it, and they have multiple levels of meaning. There is a historical sense, meaning this is about the history of the human race, mostly the psychological, spiritual history of the human race, but then also there's a personal level on which it's talking about each of our lives in a microcosm. Right now we're starting with the historical sense. See a couple of our other episodes, we had the meaning of Adam and Eve, because this this was talking about the first group of people in the world, the first church, as Swedenborg calls it, the first mindset or spirituality, and that's what was ending here. And then spiritual marriage, this whole show is about bringing goodness and truth or love and wisdom back together, and these, will and intellect, these were separated in the Noah story. So both those episodes gain relevance from this one. The essential problem is that human feelings were becoming corrupt. So we're taking ourselves back to the early days of the human race. We lived, as you would imagine, like an idyllic kind of childhood for the human race. People were kind to each other, people shared the way that you'd still, still some tribes that were first contacted by the spread of, you know, Western civilization still were living this way. You know, kindness, love toward everyone, love toward strangers. This is how we all used to be, but because nobody wanted to dominate anyone, nobody wanted to steal from anyone, nobody wanted to take things that weren't theirs, but the feelings began to change. And this is the story is actually told in these words from Genesis 6. And so it was that humankind began to multiply on the face of the ground, and daughters were born to them. And the sons of God saw the daughters of humankind, that they were good, and they took wives for themselves from among all whom they chose. And Jehovah said, My spirit will not denounce humankind forever, because they are flesh, and their days will be 120 years. So this is a strange passage, and a lot of people take that to mean that angels came down and had sex with human beings and then and made children. Um, and that is not what Swedenborg says it's about, because if the story was... First of all, he said something like that wouldn't happen. I mean, angel, that's not, that's not what an angel is like. And it's impossible because physical world, spiritual world, how those interact, it's a, it's a metaphysical impossibility. However, um, 
the point is that would still be just one thing in time. That wouldn't, that is a nice story to hear, sort of nice, but it doesn't apply to all of us all the time, always. For something to be divine, it's got to have a meaning that applies to everyone, always. And so it's actually always about stuff inside of us. Okay, I've set that up. Let's see what it is. It started with the daughters that he mentioned. These are representative. The daughters are representative of our affections and the affections of the earliest people. And over time, those affections began to become corrupt. They went from being loving toward others and and thinking of others to being self-centered and thinking only about self. And then we start to talk about the sons of God. The sons of God, in this sense, are truths in the mind. But those truths began to join with these corrupt affections. And then from that, they too began to be corrupted. So there you had feelings that went south corrupting thoughts. And so, then you have God appearing in this. Uh, he comes down as the sun, and he's, he makes this strange statement. We didn't read this part here, but he says, their days will be 120 years. Swedenborg says that particular phrase, 120 has meaning, all of it has meaning, is a new way is predicated of forming people so they could acquire those remnants. <clears throat> if that doesn't quite make sense yet, we'll get there. The point is, human beings, their, their da- the daughter in the mind began to become corrupt. Then the, uh, the sun followed, you know, the, the thoughts followed, and from that, we began to be in big trouble, right? And God saw this, anticipated it, and thought, okay, I'm going to make a new way to make people. We read in Divine Providence 61, when we become spirits, which happens after death, we are the desire of our love and not our thought, except to the extent that it comes from that desire. We are drawn to what is evil, which amounts to a compulsion if our love has been a love for what is evil, and we are drawn to what is good if our love has been a love for what is good. Because What he's basically saying is, what makes you who you are is what you care about, not what you think about, you know, what you want rather than what you know. So when the want side, the the daughter side, gets corrupt, it pulls the son with it. You know, this this pull, and you can just see that. If anybody, if they want, if somebody is emotionally devoted to something, they make up reasons to say that's okay. Or if they're emotionally devoted to a particular way of thinking about politics or something, they'll just search out the facts that support them, right? So that coupling was happening of corrupted feelings and thus corrupted thoughts was happening in the earliest people. And because of that, there arose these monsters, which are talked about in Genesis 6, verse 4 to 5. The Nephilim were in the land in those days, and for a very long time after the sons of God went into the daughters of humankind who bore children to them. These were mighty men, who for ages had been men with a name. And Jehovah saw that the evil of the people in the land multiplied, and what the thoughts of their heart fabricated was nothing but evil every day. So, Nephilim, a lot of people who are into the Bible wonder, what is Nephilim? Are they these giant, were they literal giants that are walking the earth? I don't know if he comments on whether or not that happened, but the symbolism of Nephilim goes like this. So we have this coupling of corrupted thoughts and corrupted desires, which have 
offspring, which is new ways of thinking. These grew up into monsters. Nephilim, or men with a name, as they're called in that quote, means an attitude of thinking of themselves as gods who could dominate others. This was the beginning of, I am more important than other people like the fundamental flaw of the human condition. However, it was really drastic with them. They had these dreadful delusions because the will and the intellect, the thoughts and the feelings back then were one. I mean, people, you you couldn't think one way and feel another. You just, you thought and felt at the same time. So as soon as you started feeling superior, you couldn't say, wait, no, that's that's wrong. I should think a different way. It all went together, and this was causing the human race, actually, to be on the edge of destruction. Secrets of Heaven 560 describes it in specific regard to the people of the church before the flood. They conceived appalling delusions as time passed. Just like I said, the goodness and truth that belong to faith, they merged so thoroughly with their foul desires that almost no trace of either was left to them. When they reached this point, they virtually suffocated themselves. And when he says suffocated, uh, there, that's not just like a metaphor. Um, that he says that the earliest people there's a there's something called correspondence where the thought and the lungs have correspondence and the feelings and the heart those things are linked and in the earliest people much more so than today because that thought and feelings are spiritual lungs and heart are physical so those things were so closely tied that when the earliest people, when their thinking was destroyed, and with along with their feelings, when it went evil, that actually affected their ability to breathe, literally, physically. That's what Swedenborg says, anyway. You can take it up with him. Okay, returning to that quote. A person lacking any remnant of goodness or truth, after all, cannot survive. A remnant, or rather the Lord working by means of a remnant, is what allows a person to seem human, to learn what is good and true, to reflect on particular instances of it, and so to think and reason. This remnant alone has spiritual and heavenly life in it. So, that that may not sound that drastic, but if the remnant is going to go, we're going to go. All right, and this is described more further, and this, and also we begin here to look at the solution, Genesis 6, 6-8. Now. And Jehovah was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth, and he grieved to himself at heart. And Jehovah said, I will obliterate the human whom I created from the face of the ground, from human to beast to creeping animal to the bird in the heavens, because I regret that I made these things. But Noah found favor in Jehovah's eyes. So there's something strange in that particular passage, which there's a couple things, but it says God regrets. And doesn't God regretting seem to indicate a lack of omniscience? If you know everything, you would have some degree of foresight, and you we probably wouldn't say, oh, I shouldn't have done that. You know, you, you should have thought ahead, right? You're God. So what what is that? Swedenborg says, Secrets of Heaven 587, that it's symbolic. Like everything else, it's not a literal regret by God. The symbolism of Jehovah was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth and of he grieved at heart as mercy can be concluded from the fact that Jehovah never has regrets. After all, he foresees absolutely everything from eternity. When he made humankind, that is, when he created people anew and perfected them into heavenly people, he also foresaw that the race would gradually become what it did. Since he saw this ahead, he could not have changed his mind. But regretting or feeling sorry symbolizes having mercy. 
Jehovah's mercy, the Lord's mercy, involves each and everything the Lord does for the human race. Humankind's nature is such that the Lord has mercy on us and on each of us according to our circumstances. So this flood is not the anger of God enveloping the earth. God doesn't punish and destroy. This is our own cravings and delusions flooding the planet, and God is the one saying, all right, I'm going to make sure that the human race doesn't get washed out by this whole thing. And part of his plan to save all of us, to save our progeny, which led up to us here, is this guy, Noah. And now, like everything else, he is symbolic. He's not, it's not one person, one family that survived and was able to repopulate the whole earth. That's very hard to do genetically. It's instead, it's a church. It's a new, which a church in Swedenborgenese means a new way of thinking and feeling, a new spiritual epoch for the human race. And this one would be characterized by having a split will and intellect, or a split thoughts and feelings, meaning like we are now, and this is where that came from, this is why we're like this now, if you believe it, there is a separation between the mind and the heart. That means I can want this, but think this, or I know I should do that, but oh, I did this instead. That's where this came from. You, it may be a, you know, it may seem like it's a burden now, but actually it was what allowed us to survive because the will, the feelings had become so corrupt, you needed to have separate thoughts so that you could be lifted up and out of that. Secrets of Heaven 563, we talk about this. This is talking about the corruption in the will at the time. Should this kind of self-deception take over, it acts like a glue, and the good feelings and true thoughts that should be our remnant adhere to it. Then remnants can no longer be stored away, and what has already been stored away becomes unavailable. As a result, when people arrived at the height of this kind of delusion, they annihilated themselves and drowned in an inundation not unlike the flood." Their extinction is compared to a flood for this reason, and in keeping with the custom of the earliest people, it is also depicted as a flood. So the flood was a flood of craving for evil, and this covered the human race, and it was even more destructive than a physical flood. But there were people who were saved. How were they saved? What, what, if, if the flood is a symbol, what's the ark? We're going to look at that in part three. finish the historical part here and look at the historical symbolism of the most famous parts of the story. This is what you paid the money for. Secrets of Heaven 605. The present subject is the formation of the new church called Noah. So Noah is this new church. Its formation is depicted by the ark that took in living things of every kind. But before that new church could come into being, it was necessary, as it always is, for the people in the church to suffer further trials, portrayed by the rising, tossing, and long ride of this ark on the flood waters. Their eventual transformation into truly spiritual people and their deliverance are depicted by the ebbing of the water and other later details. So you had this, there was a group of people who were willing to go back to love. God could find these people, bring them back into this new way when everyone else was just saying, who cares? Like, I, I want power. I want to destroy people. There were some people who, who showed that sign. These are the people God calls to, okay, let's start something new. But they had to go through spiritual growth just like we have to go through spiritual growth, which means there were struggles and there were trials. And that is what this whole being in the ark 
period symbolizes. And we are going to walk you through, like I said, there's so much that we're just going to go tell you the symbolism, the arc, and all these things, and we're just going to go point to point to point to point in quick succession, read the end of Secrets of Heaven 1, beginning of 2, if you want more details. Here's the basics, though, so that if anyone walks up to you the next time you're at a party and says, what's the general symbolism of the major elements of the Noah story according to Swedenborg, you can tell them. All right, let's begin. This is the ark. So first you have... Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. You must make compartments in the ark. It's not good karma to interrupt the Bible being read like that. I I apologize. Okay, so uh, here's the ark. I just got so worked up. Uh, And we're going to go through it piece by piece. First of all, we have gopher wood. And this this is a fascinating point to start. Swedenborg says that gopher wood, it's a kind of wood that is loaded with sulfur and it's flammable. That Actually, that wood symbolized even these people who are going to be part of this good new thing had these these evil cravings inside them, like like everybody does, but God could actually use those to create the outer shell of the ark, that God can even take the bad stuff in us and bring it to good. So that's the gopher wood. Also, you see the ark was split into two compartments, or multiple compartments, and this was a division made between the will and the understanding. The ark overall is the picture of our mind, of the mind of these people that survived, which were the ancestors of us. So this is our sort of spiritual genetic heritage here. So there's a division between the will and the understanding, and that was so important because the will was corrupt. You needed to have separate thoughts. So then you had tar around the outside of the boat, which represented a protection of of our will side, the will side from the flood. So the feelings, there was some buffer between their feelings and these these delusion or the, these cravings for evil that were taking over everyone. The, actually, the dimensions of the ark, <clears throat> even these the numbers. We won't go into the specifics, but these. Numbers, the dimensions had to do with using the scarce remnants that these people had to make this journey. So people still had some of this stuff in them, and God was able to use that to bring them towards good. Okay, then we had a window up high, which this a window is a, you know, look in, in dream psychology, this is an ability to understand from a higher perspective. So that window on the ark was a symbol of this this new window in from heaven, from God. Here, we're going to give you some truths that are going to help you out of this thing. The door was put on the under... So we, this divided... The ark is divided into the thoughts and feelings side. The door was put on the thoughts side, the side of the understanding, which was now separate from the will, because that's where this new stuff could come in. Then... You had three levels within the ark, which these are the matters of fact, reason, and understanding, according to Swedenborg. These are the three levels in our minds. They they correspond to the three levels of heaven. That's why the ark was like it was. Then you also had, um, after the three levels, uh, that's the end of the ark. But that's not the end of the story, right? This is, is, and and actually even the end of the whole ark because there's a lot more. But we're going to leave it there and take a look now at where that ark, or who was going to go into that ark. You will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing, of all flesh, you must bring pairs of each into the ark to keep them alive with you. So now we have Noah's family. Let's take a look at what was going on there. 
Noah and his wife, like we said, this was a symbol of this new church, but actually Noah is the doctrine and his wife is the actual church. Um, so there you have the church being this internal state in people that was willing to re- receive God and doctrine being the teaching from God. These two people symbolize those parts in us. Their sons and their wives, it's not just superfluous extras. These were the elements of truth and goodness that could come in and build this new mindset with them. Then you had these animals coming in, clean, unclean animals. You'll see across Swedenborg, animals are symbols of affections and feelings. The clean animals, good feelings and thoughts but why don't you just leave the unclean animals out of there? In, not literally, but in the story. Well, the unclean animals are lower self feelings. These are our negative traits, but they're still, they just need to be put in the right order. They just need to be tempered and made harmless. So you had, just, just an aside, you had seven of the clean animals, two of the unclean. Seven means all or completeness. So you brought in all of these good feelings and just enough of the bad ones that you could reform them. Then also, you brought in food for everyone, which are the pleasant feelings to feed the elements of the will, true concepts to feed the elements of the intellect, which are spiritual food, you can see in other shows, suited to each particular element to keep it alive. So this was, there had to be some joy in life for these people, or else they wouldn't be able to live. And then finally, Jehovah closed the door behind them. And this is what we are talking about in the very beginning, the intro of the show. People were no longer able to communicate with heaven the way the people of the heavenly church had. That pathway had become so corrupt that there had to be this separation now because people were connecting to bad things in the spiritual world instead of good things. So that is why we all have such a hard time getting through, which seems like it was bad, but it actually saved our lives at the time. So We'll forgive uh, in this instance. So that those are the characters on the ark, and now let's talk about the, the, the flood that the ark went through. On that day, all the springs of the great abyss burst, and heaven's floodgates opened, and there was a downpour on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Okay, the flood itself is symbolic as well. Let's get right into it. I know we've seen a lot of these blue and white boxes. Stick with it. Downpour for 40 days and 40 nights is the struggle, the duration of the trials. And you'll see that number. You, this, if, if, you, if you think, where is he getting this symbolism from? You'll see that that number appears wherever there are struggles and trials in the Bible. You may remember 40 years in the wilderness for the children of Israel. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, or for 40 days and 40 nights with the devil. Um, this this uh, wilderness is a symbol for temptation or trials, just like the flood is. And then after that, you had all substance on the earth being obliterated. This is not the literal earth, you know, it's not that all animals were wiped out, it's that human self-sufficiency, the earth being a symbol of the human mind, human efforts separated from God had to be obliterated in order for rebirth to happen. It's kind of like the, someone who's who's really devoted to the twelve steps, they they express this dependence. You know, I I need this program. I need my higher power to get me through. These people had to realize, without this, we would we would all be under the water. Everything on the earth was destroyed. Those in the ark were protected and saved, but they lost their old home. Those who insisted on autonomy lost contact with the life source and destroyed themselves. But people being reborn had to let go of the old ways of self-sufficiency or believing, disbelieving in the divine inflow, that we actually are dependent on God. We need that divine love to live. 
So the drastic floodwaters coming from the abyss and heaven's floodgates, these things are mentioned. Persuasive lies coming from trials of the will and trials of the intellect, ideas originally from above mixed with hellish desires. That's the stuff that was crashing over the earth. It's really that mixing that's the worst thing. Swedenborg says that it's when you take good things and mix in bad things, everything is ruined after that. So that's no good. The floodwaters covering the mountain. Persuasive lies covered up the good effects of charity. Mountain is a symbol of love. This is a symbol of love to other human beings. The fact that the water got so high, love disappeared. That's what you got there. So that is the flood. But the flood wasn't the end, was it? They made it through, and then there was this peace. And God remembered Noah and every wild animal and every beast that was with him in the ark. And God made a wind pass over the earth, and the waters subsided. So what is this all about, God remembering Noah? Let's take a look. Uh, An east wind begins to dry up the water. After the shakeup, that's God putting everything in its proper place. And file that one away, because we're going to talk about the east wind a little bit later. Then the waters receding, going and coming back. This is interesting. Vacillating between truth and falsity as they learned a new way to live. Think about it. If you've ever had what you would feel like was some real spiritual growth or a personal breakthrough or something, does it happen and then you never go back? No. I mean, we learn things. We're doing really good. Then we get some kind of setback. With anything in life, we go back and forth. With these people, you know, Swedenborg says, especially with spiritual development. You're in truth, but then you're in falsity. You're doing really well, but then you're messing up. You see it clearly, then you don't see it. That's those waters. They don't just all go away at once. It's a cycle. You know, you can think you've beaten an issue, but then it's back. But eventually, the ark lands on Mount Aratat, the top, so the mountains appear. Noah opens the window. These have specific meanings, but generally, it's the gradual process of seeing and understanding from a perspective of charity. Because remember, the mountains symbolize charity, or that's a Swedenborg term for love for other human beings. So if your ark lands on a mountain, that was the first dry land they had. It was to see, okay, you can love other people. We can live like this. Then there was the raven, but it couldn't find a resting place. This is when falsity is still troubling them, so they can't yet apply the truth to life. It seems like we have this new way to live, this is going to be great, but but what about this and what about that? I don't know how to apply this here. It was confusion. There was too much confusion, so it had to come back. But then finally, the dove, a different bird, different correspondence. This was truth and goodness of faith in those who are being reborn. Waters were still blocking the ground, was the falsity still getting in the way, but the dove went out and didn't return because it finally found somewhere to land. So that's that, and then there's, there's the, the exodus. So let's take a look at that. And Noah removed the roof of the ark and looked, and indeed the face of the ground had dried up. Removing the roof always has a good correspondence. You know, you even hear songs today like Blow the Roof Off, you know, that it's always something good. All right, so what is it specifically? Let's take a look. The water was gone, first of all. The falsity, the water can stand for truth or falsity. In this case, falsity. Falsity was siphoned away from the contents of their will. So through this process, all the delusions in the feelings were brought out. You suddenly, you dried out there. The the deluge of cravings were gone. 
Noah removed the roof of the ark and looked out. The light of religious truth, once falsity had been removed, you could now see, understand the sky. So the stuff that was obscure, you got it. It was like, this is about love, and it was actually something that could that could uplift you and change you. God told Noah and his family to come out of the ark. That was liberty from a limited mindset, a new way to relate to God who is liberty. So even this freedom from you were in the ark, it got you through, but now we're out and we're colonizing and things are things are multiplying. He the animals come back out, fill the earth and multiply. The thoughts and feelings can now be set free. The earth is open and we're actually going to come back to that at the very end of our show here a little more what it means they came out of the ark, a new mind, a new mindset. This was the beginning of that new church and it's interesting perception could no longer guide them, but now they had something new called conscience which would lead them back to charity and God. Swedenborg makes a big distinction. Perception was just knowing right away what was right, what was wrong. Conscience is more like, should I do this, should I not? I think it over. That It's it's better to have perception, but once that was destroyed, we get to where we are now, which is we try to have conscience uh, lead us where we want to go. Noah built an altar, which was a new kind of relationship with God. This The old one had been destroyed. Now it was like, we have a new way to connect to heaven, so at least we could get back to a better place than we're in now. And Jehovah said, I will never again curse the ground or strike every living thing. With this new kind of mind, humans could never again destroy themselves as the fallen earliest church had. If you didn't have that, that there was that fail-safe was in there now, so you, people could never mess themselves up uh, as badly as they were uh, before. So, that's the end of that. Let's take a look at what we got now. Um, so to kind of summarize that, we've got like a, a video here that sort of retells uh, this story, and this is from Secrets of Heaven 927. The will and intellect of people in the earliest church constituted a single mind. For them, in other words, love was planted in the volitional side, and at the same time so was faith, which filled the second part of the mind, or the intellectual side. Their descendants consequently inherited a will and an intellect that formed a single unit. So when self-love and the mad desires that it spawns started to take over their volitional side, displacing love for the Lord and charity towards the neighbor, it totally corrupted not only the volitional side or the will, but at the same time the intellectual part or the intellect. The corruption intensified when the final generation merged falsity with their cravings and by this means became Nephilim. Having become Nephilim, they could not be salvaged because their mind on both its sides, that is, their whole mind, was destroyed. But since the Lord foresaw this, he also provided that humankind should be rehabilitated. The means would be an ability to reform and regenerate the second or intellectual part of their mind and to receive in it the seed of a new will. The new will is conscience, through which the Lord puts into action the good urges of love or charity and the true ideas of faith. In this way, by the Lord's divine mercy, humankind was restored. Humankind was restored, and they marked that uh, with with a rainbow and a promise. So let's take a look at this promise. Throughout all the days of the earth to come, sowing and reaping and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night will not end. So of course that had meaning as well. 
We're going to take a look at what that meaning is. Sowing and reaping, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will not cease. God now provides cycles through which people can spiritually grow and be purified. These are the the goods and the bads, but it's all leading somewhere. So this is a new program that we're running, that they could run, that always makes it so we can progress. We're never stuck without a way out. Uh, And then also... The rainbow. God makes a new pact with humanity, gives the sign of the rainbow. Rebirth is now possible, a new way to unite with God. Though we get clouds of falsity around us, God can regenerate us so that the light shines through those clouds and becomes beautiful. And we're going to actually look uh, even farther into those things, because why not? You, you guys are already here. Where you're going you're gonna to leave now? You were with us through that whole arc section? You're going to leave now? Okay, this is Secrets of Heaven 932, and it's about the sowing and the reaping. The general subject here is humankind as a whole, and the fact that the time will never come when there are no seeds being planted in us by the Lord. Whether we are inside or outside the church, that is, whether we know the Lord's Word or not, without seed planted by the Lord, no one can do a whit of good. So that, there's always crop, there's always new things growing in us, this is never going to flood like it was. Then the cold and the heat that he, he talks about, Secrets of Heaven 933, there was only one really good way to see that when we are regenerating, we go through these phases of cold and heat, or of faith and charity absent and present. That is through experience and through reflection on our experience. Whenever we are caught up in bodily and worldly concerns, we experience a lack of faith and charity or coldness. At such times, our bodily and worldly interests, and so our self-interest, are active. As long as we are wrapped up in them, we are devoid of or distant from belief and neighborly love, so that we do not even think about heavenly and spiritual matters. Continuing, the reason for the disconnection is that a heavenly focus and a bodily focus can never coexist in us since the human will is lost beyond recall. When our bodily desires and the urges of our will stop agitating and fall quiet, though, the Lord works through our inner self, and we then come into faith and charity, which are called heat here. When we return to a bodily focus, we go back into the cold, and when the body and everything connected with it fade away almost to the point of vanishing, we regain the warmth, and so on in cycles. So if you are at home trying to do some spiritual growth or development, and you feel like, oh, I'm not making progress, like things are going good, but then I keep making these mistakes or I seem to regress... Thumbs up. That's that's part of the. That's an inescapable part of the process. We vacillate. That's the cold and heat. A correspondence is everything is a correspondence. The fact that you go that the, there's day and night cycles here on this planet. The fact that there are seasons of cold and heat that reflects the mindset we go through. Even when you're going up, you go through these seasons through these day and night cycles on your own. And then finally, we're going to talk about the rainbow a little bit more. Secrets of Heaven ten forty three. And this is, a, this is just like a little bit of weird spiritual trivia, so, uh, so nobody goes home unsatisfied. The darkness in people, which is being called a cloud, is falsity, which is the same thing as their intellectual selfhood. When the Lord infuses this selfhood with innocence, charity, and mercy, the cloud is no longer seen as something false, but as the outward appearance of truth, together with truth that is true, which comes from the Lord." This is what creates the effect of a colorful arc. It is a kind of spiritual transformation that is completely impossible to describe. If it is not pictured in terms of color and the generation of color, I do not know whether it can be explained in a comprehensible way. And this is a spiritual phenomenon Swedenborg is seeing his experiences. When we have good in us, even our falsity, even the droplets of water in our spiritual clouds create this rainbow because God is, is shining through. 
So there's the historical story. We started to bleed into what does this mean for us personally. Let's take that lead completely now in part four. Let's reconnect to our story and the fact that this really is a universal story, because we're going to go in depth in this section about how it's universal in the present, but even the telling. We're going to hear now about a few more examples of these parallel flood stories from around the world and how it's actually common to try to link these to psychology, that, that us here looking at, at this flood story in a psychological way, that's, that's nothing new. So here's a little bit more on, on the, the flood connection. Uh, so when we talk about the flood myth, we should probably really be talking about the flood myths. Um, there's, of course, a, 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 since probably Joseph Campbell, there's been a, a big love of the idea of comparative mythology or these um, universal myths that creep up. Some are more universal than others, but I really would say the flood myth has got to be right at the top of that list. Um, creation myth everywhere. But flood myths seem to be all over the world. Um, whether that's universal or not, it's pretty um, across the board. Um, so I think some of the most important to mention would, of course, be the Babylonian flood myth, which um, is shockingly similar to uh, the myth of Noah and the flood. He's got three sons. He builds a big boat to survive a flood that is going to kill the wicked people, and he even sends two birds out. And before taking uh, landing on a mountaintop. So uh, fairly indistinguishable, actually, other than names and places. Um, other myths, I, one of my favorite things about um, the study of myth really is that there's almost like there's infinite variety and infinite consistency between these myths. Uh, so it's almost like if there's a way to tell this story differently, it exists. Um, there's a... Uh, there are American Indian myths where they never actually get on a boat. It starts out on the mountaintop and stays there. And they're told by a by their goats, actually, that a flood is coming. And um, they need to get to the top of this mountain. And they're the only two shepherd brothers are the only ones that survive. Another of my favorites is um, a Mayan myth uh, from the Popova. And it, it basically uh, is very similar the, there's the building of a boat, the surviving of a flood. Um, the heart of sky looks down and sees that the, the, the people are forgetting their maker. So sends a big flood, only uh, a very few survive, and, and the people that emerge from that flood are uniquely different. Another of my favorites is actually an Egyptian flood myth, which is very different while still having structurally the same parts, which is... Again, mankind has become wicked, so Ra sends his eye, the goddess Hathor, who basically massacres people um, and creates a flood of blood. So, and it even specifically says blood mixed with water, which starts to get that, you know, uh, what Swedenborg would get out of the, we need to be able to separate these two components. Um, so again, a structurally the same, um, and that's only placated by um, sort of a, a mixture of blood and beer, which gets released and um, lures Hathor, the goddess, away. Um, so again, I mean, it, you get into these the details, um, and the myths are uniquely different, but seem to have, whether it's correspondentially or psychologically, 
similar elements that you could almost um, break them apart on. But from a psychology standpoint, the flood is always being taken too literally if it's seen as a um, punishment. When in fact, um, it's more of the story of the birth of consciousness. You have, in a Jungian sense, you have the collective unconscious, that would be that flood coming up. Um, whether it's falsity or not, it's um, a flood of the collective. And the only people or person that can survive is someone who has been given or taken the ability to individuate or float above that um, that flood, that um, collective unconscious, which can be creative and dangerous at the same time. And we are going to do... So, so that's just to show you that that there's a lot of these stories and people have known there's something psychological about this and we're going to get in depth into the personal psychology of the Noah story as told by Swedenborg. Briefly, the, the Noah story is about our own personal floods as well and we're going to lay out a few steps or a few elements of struggles that Swedenborg talks about. Major life transitions, that's one way you could call them, he, he calls them temptations, spiritual struggles. They involve hardship as a consequence of old mindsets coming to a head, hitting bottom, you know, trials and struggles as the old beliefs and ways of operating break down. There's confusion in the transition process of gradual realizations and learning. There's re-emergence of deeply rooted good priorities to get us through, which that would be the remnant. And there's new clarity and peace when liberated from old habits and misconceptions. That's where we're all on dry land. And these all have a direct analog in this story, and we're going to look at what those are. But first, you may wonder, what would what is that actually, what would the flood story actually be like as applied to a human being? So we're going to show that to you now. We actually have a story, a personal story that, that is going to be told here that this is this is somebody with their own arc and, and how these, how this became very real for them. So let's take a look. At the end of my fourth grade year, we found out that my mom had an inoperable brain tumor. By the fall of my fifth grade year, she died. And I remember thinking back on it, it just felt like the color was drained from my life. Um, any of that sort of sprouting of passions that I had through early elementary school just kind of stalled out. In the year after my mom died, I ended up having um, these amazing spiritual dreams. And in the final of them, I felt like I went into heaven and met her. And it was, light was everywhere. Even God was on a, this throne and we were dancing. And she gave me the message, you're not gonna be able to see me or connect to me for a long time. Um, and even then, I remember feeling this sense of apprehension, this premonition that I was going to be going down into this dark, dark place where I couldn't have any conscious contact with heaven. And sure enough, I went into a very dark place. Um, I just felt hollow on the inside and like I had just lost any connection to true joy. By the time I was in seventh grade, I started smoking cigarettes. By the time I was in eighth grade, I was binge drinking every weekend with my friends. Um, by the time I was a freshman in high school, I was smoking pot, and this just continued and um, to worsen and deepen throughout high school and all the way up into my first year of college. So she went to college, came back, 
and started to find some new material. Even by the time I was home again, I had the memory of these spiritual dreams I had had, but I doubted their validity. Um, it felt like the one concept that remained to have some vibrancy to me was this idea of divine providence that I had heard of. Um, everything else had just fallen away. And that summer when I came home, the New Century Edition had just come out with their copy of their new translation of Divine Providence. And I think I had a curiosity about it and I decided to start reading it. This became just a regular daily thing. Every morning I would spend at least an hour just voraciously reading Divine Providence. And then every night I would go out and just get drunk with my friends and smoke pot and just be, you know, continued to be just completely immersed in all of these outward and, um, you know, harmful behaviors and relationships. But I kept reading Divine Providence. And I see now that just through reading and bringing these ideas into my mind was actually, you know, kind of like collecting the wood to build this ark. I remember the moment when I left my front door, I was halfway to my car, and I just had a thought. You know what's going to happen when you get in your car and you go out. You know you're going to get drunk. You know you're just going to smoke. You know you're going to regret the things you do with people. Why not just go back inside? And I did. I turned around. It might have been that moment, like this conscious turning that happened where suddenly I had this new mind that was existing above this will that was just completely controlling me of just compulsively going out and doing the same old thing that I had been doing for years and years, um, ever since sort of the trauma of losing my mom. Um, I ended up having just the most intense dream. We're going to look at that dream now. And you just, just, I'm just giving you a little buffer here because we're going to get into some very intense correspondential imagery in her dream. So send the kids out of the room. Well, I mean, I would imagine they got bored 45 minutes ago, but if they're still there, get them out of there. So let's see uh, what the dreams consist of. I was this disgusting creature, like kind of like Gollum turned up to 11 and I had to be chained but I had this awareness of who was holding the leash. And it was this like demonic figure, like the epitome of, of manipulation and domination, just sort of like powerful presence that was holding this leash that was connected to the chain that was around my neck. Um, and this, I was so terrified by this dream and the terror of it sort of loose, lucidly woke, shifted my dream. And all of a sudden I found myself floating in black space, just my body. Um, you know, I was me again. And I had this awareness of this spider that was just crawling all over my body. Um, too fast for me to have, to keep track of where it was. And I just couldn't get it off of me. And I wanted nothing more than to get this spider off of me. And I had this lucid moment in that part of the dream where I thought I have to connect to God. Like I have to draw in and God is the only one with the power to help me get rid of this spider. And the moment I had that thought, I just drew all of my energy into my core and connected to this 
enormous light. I mean, to this connection to God that just blasted out through me and just obliterated the spider. All of a sudden, I was and yet was looking at this enormous tree. And it was huge. And part of it was alive, but it had these burnt, blackened, dead branches that were just breaking off from the trunk of the tree and crashing down. That was when I woke up from the dream in an enormous sweat and just shaking. Um, and, you know, when you wake up from a nightmare, you kind of, all you want to do is just get some sort of good thought into your mind. And so, I, you know, I was reading Divine Providence at the time, so I just reached for the book on my bedside table and opened it to just where I had been reading, where I had last left off. And the very next number I read was Divine Providence 107. So what is Divine Providence 107, and why is it relevant to the dream she just had? Let's take a look. Isn't that what we do here? We read numbers from Swedenborg. Heavenly love with its affections for good and truth, and perceptions therefrom, together with its enjoyments, and from these affections and thoughts therefrom, may be likened to a tree distinguished for its branches, leaves, and fruits. The life's love is the tree. The branches with the leaves are affections for good and truth with their perceptions, and the fruits are the enjoyment of affections and their thoughts. But infernal love with its affections for evil and falsity, which are lusts, together with the enjoyment of these lusts and thoughts therefrom, may be likened to a spider with its surrounding web. The love itself is the spider. The lusts of evil and falsity with their interior subtleties are the net-like threads nearest the spider's seat, and the enjoyments of these lusts with their deceitful devices are the remoter threads where the flies are caught on the wing and are ensnared and eaten. So there you have Jesus had these intense dreams. And with two, two of the primary symbols were a spider and a tree, and that pops up right there. So I think that that's cool, and, and so did she. So here's the end of the story. So having this moment where the very next passage I read was about a tree and a spider, it gave me this sense that I could trust what was going on inside of me. And I think, again, that was like part of the building of the ark in my mind where I felt clear that I needed to stop these outer compulsive behaviors that I was doing. So I did. And over the next two years, it was like a gradual, slow process where I was able to get stop these behaviors. I feel like now, on dry land, I've been able to follow this path of really connecting again to inner joy and what that means and a knowledge of how to stay connected to that. It's not like troubles go away, you know, life goes on, you know, there's a whole lot of the Bible left after the flood story, but um, that, that was a really pivotal time for me, and, and even through the ups and downs, I feel like it's, it's been progress ever since. And progress ever since, that's what we want to give everyone we can, so that's why we're sharing this information in the first place, and to, to make it even clearer, we're going to go through the elements of the story and give you some personal interpretations of those. First of all, you got the flood. You know, this is a thing that covered the whole earth. Well, it can cover the the earth. Well, I got my quote hidden behind that. The earth of our mind as well. This is from Swedenborg's Spiritual Experiences 4155. And this is him. One of the things he was able to do is really feel specifics of... Um, the uh, the spiritual world and, and how that whole thing worked. 
uh, in his mind. We just feel these like remotely, but he was really feeling it. From experience, I've been given to learn what the flood is. It is twofold, consisting of passions which belong to the right side of the head and fantasies which belong to the left side. When a person is being held by the Lord in such a way that the companies of evil spirits do not enter, then he is free of, ah, we got our clouds back, then he is free of and lifted above the inflow of those companies. The moment one is plunged into such societies, it is a kind of flood, for one becomes like they are, in like manner becoming indignant, angry, pensive, despairing, desiring, whereas insofar as one is withheld from them, so far one is more or less on the bank or the shore, in safety or within the ark, thus either at the left side of the head, devoted to matters of understanding or thought, or at the right side of the head, devoted to matters of the will or passions. Thus, the more one is immersed in them, the more one is inundated. It is like a flood, for it takes place in the same way, and so it is compared to waters. These things I know from experience, for I was held up for a long time out of a flood, while other spirits were in it, and afterwards I was immersed and felt what it was just like, that it was, felt what was just like an inundation. Temptations are of this nature." Have you ever felt like negativity, confusion just flooded over you? Swedenborg is saying this, this, is, this is a direct analog that just comes into your mind. It overwhelms you like what, just picture flood water racing over a stump or, you know, or a car or something like that. So there's a flood. Then you have this phrase, God remembered. God remembered Noah. Do, does God forget about us, then remember us? Secrets of Heaven 840. As long as our trials continue, we think the Lord is absent, since evil demons disturb us, sometimes to the point where despair almost prevents us from believing God exists at all. But the Lord is closer then than we can possibly believe. When the trouble ends, we find comfort, and then we first believe that the Lord is present. That is why God remembered, since it symbolizes as though He remembers, Noah symbolizes the end of struggle and the beginning of renewal. So, you have the end of struggle, the beginning of renewal. It's, it's, it's written from our perspective, like it seems to us, God forgot about us. Oh, God remembers. God is always there, but there's, it's like clouds overhead. It seems like the sun is gone. The sun's always there. It's just this stuff really close to the earth that blocks it. Then that rainbow, uh, that, that has this symbolism that we already talked about, but there's a personal symbolism to it too, Secrets of Heaven 868, uh, where he describes... Uh, it's, a, it's having to do with these times of trouble and, and tribulation, spiritual growth. Through our times of trouble, the Lord also gives us a new capacity for receiving goodness and truth. He endows us with conceptions of what is good and true and feelings of affection for it. And whatever is evil and false can then be bent in that direction. He also introduces into our general ideas more specific ones, and into these the most specific, which are hidden to us of which we are totally unaware since they lie beyond the reach of our comprehension and perception. This subconscious knowledge serves as a reservoir or container into which the Lord can pour neighborly love, which itself holds the innocence He can instill. These things, when mixed together in a marvelous balance in a person, spirit or angel, can present an image of a rainbow, which is why a rainbow was used as the sign of the pack mentioned in Genesis. So God's work in us appears if you have, if you if you have your spiritual eyes opened as Swedenborg did, or you happen to be in the spiritual world, which we all will be one day, that stuff appears as a rainbow around. And while we're on the subject of uplifting and dispelling, remember before I said, keep that, we talked about the east wind, and I said, keep that east wind in your, in your folder, probably you've all forgotten about it by now, but listen, 
We're talking about it again. I wasn't lying. The east wind, this is something Swedenborg describes as a spiritual world phenomenon, so it can affect us mentally and affect the spiritual world very viscerally. So this is Secrets of Heaven 842. During our struggles, which are the waters that subsided, it is evil spirits that flood in. They crowd in on us with their delusional thinking and stir up the same kind of thinking in us. When something banishes these spirits, or rather the hallucinations they induce, the word describes the wind, and in fact the east wind, as the agent. For an individual who is being tested, the circumstances surrounding the end of the struggle's commotions, or waters, are the same as those for a larger collection of people, as I have learned from much experience. Evil spirits in the world of spirits sometimes form gangs and cause disturbances, but they are dispersed by other groups of spirits that generally approach from the right and so from the east. These groups strike such fear and terror into the evil spirits that they cannot think about anything but running away. Though they had ganged together, they scatter in all directions, and this is the way in which such coalitions of spirits mobbing together for evil purposes are dissolved. The groups of spirits who disperse them by this method are called an east wind. When the evil spirits have scattered and the mob and its agitation are past, a calm or silence occurs. The case is similar for an individual during times of trial. In those periods, the person is surrounded by a crowd of the same types of spirits as above, and after they have been driven off or dispelled, there is a kind of calm, the first step in putting everything where it belongs. Before being reduced to order, it is very common for everything to fall into confusion or seeming chaos. This allows things that cling together poorly to separate, and when they have separated, the Lord arranges them in their place. Nature offers parallels, since in it too, each and every thing first falls into some degree of disorder before being put in order. If the skies did not storm, causing unlike elements to scatter, the air would never clear. Destructive forces would amass and wreak havoc. It is the same with a person who is regenerating. So we're also going to talk briefly about land and seed, as it's described, Secrets of Heaven 653. Here's what happens during Reformation, a process accomplished through conflict and trials. As we said, you got to go through the conflict, you got to go through the flood in order to get out on the other side. Evil spirits attach themselves to us, and they call up the facts we have heard, the ideas that seem rational to us, and nothing else. Their activity wards off any spirit who would arouse our desires. There are, you see, two kinds of evil spirit. Those who, that's so, somebody tuned in right at this moment, like, what am I watching? There are, you see, two kinds of evil spirit, those who act on our rationalizations and those who act on our cravings. Those who stir up our rationalizations call forth our misconceptions. They try to persuade us that falsity is truth. And more than that, they even turn our true ideas into false ones. These falsities we must combat when we are going through times of trial, although it is the Lord working through the angels connected to us who actually fights against them. So a little bit of, of the ways that hell attacks our minds. After these battles have sifted out the falsities and apparently rid us of them, we are ready to accept the truth taught by faith. 
As long as falsity governs us, of course, we are completely unable to accept religious truth because the false premises we have adopted stand in the way. Once prepared in this way to accept religious truth, we can for the first time be sown with heavenly seed, the seed of charity. The seed of charity can never be sown in ground controlled by falsities, but only where truth rules. And there you have a, a picture of evil thinks, I'm going to mess this person up, I'm going to mess up their mind. God is actually using that to pull the falsity out of us, because when anything false or evil in us gets worked up like that, we, we really realize, I can't live with this, and then we can give it up, establish some humility, bring in that, that fertile soil that can grow these spiritual things in it. And finally, we're going to talk about the personal aspects of the waters receding, so the waters pulling back after the great flood. This is Secrets of Heaven 848. When our trials are over, we experience, and we talked about this before, we experience a kind of wavering. And if our trials have been spiritual, it is a vacillation between truth and falsity, as can be seen clearly enough from the fact that the trial is the beginning of regeneration. The whole process of rebirth exists in order for us to receive new life, or rather, to receive life at all. It exists in order that from being non-human, we may become human or from being dead, we may become alive. It will be spiritually dead, meaning devoted to evil and falsity rather than goodness and truth. So when our previous way of life, which was no better than animal life, breaks down in times of trouble, we cannot help faltering between truth and falsity after the trouble has passed. Truth belongs to the new life, falsity to the old. Unless the earlier way of life is destroyed and this uncertainty takes hold, spiritual seed cannot possibly be sown in us, since there is no soil for it. When disintegration of the prior life is complete, on the other hand, such hesitation takes its place. We are left with almost no idea of what is true or good. We are so unsure that we scarcely know whether anything is true. Yet slowly, bit by bit, light begins to pierce the murk or darkness we live in. So, life knocks you down. Something good is accomplished, even if we don't realize it. For a while, it's like, is anything stable? Do I know anything? But slowly, you can see, wait new things are growing, good things are growing. And as those things continue to grow, eventually there's enough that they can fill the entire earth, as we'll see in part five. On a personal level, these struggles that we go through, they, they free us. As we were just seeing in that number, they free us from evil and falsity, so it's worth going through it. This is a part of the larger process of regeneration. We did an episode called How to Find Your True Self, which talks a little bit about how once we are get these things out, then the real us, the real life can begin. So floods are a pain, but it's what's on the other side is cool. And this is described in Genesis 8, so we'll just take a listen. Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you, every wild animal that is with you, of all flesh, including the bird and the beast and every creeping thing creeping on the earth. Take them out with you and let them swarm throughout the earth and reproduce and multiply on the earth. So, like we said before, animals are this symbol of thoughts and feelings. If you picture, you know, the whole earth this is just a metaphor, but you picture if all life was wiped off the earth, the animals that were then introduced, they would spread and they would colonize everything. This is just like, as Swedenborg was describing, evil and falsity comes in, floods us, but that disperses the truth, and we're wiped, like, wiped out. Oh, you're almost, it's almost like a new life begins 
because you've had these old sort of constructs broken down. Now, this good stuff that was stored up in the ark can go out and it can spread across the whole earth. This is our new, our better self, our, our new ideals spreading out. The whole earth is our whole life, our whole mind. So that's the promise. And Swedenborg talks about how much these good things in our hearts and in our minds can grow and grow to infinity, and he describes it in Divine Providence 56. There is evidence of an image of what is infinite and eternal in the way everything bears fruit and multiplies in the reproductive ability of seeds in the plant kingdom and in the process of reproduction in the animal kingdom. It is the same for us in regard to the desires of our love and the perceptions of our wisdom. For both, the variety is infinite and eternal, and the same holds true for the ways they bear fruit and multiply, which are spiritual. No individual enjoys any desire or perception so much like someone else's as to be identical, and no one can to eternity. Further, desires can bear fruit endlessly, and perceptions can multiply endlessly. It is widely understood that we can never exhaust the store of knowledge. This ability to bear fruit and multiply endlessly, or to infinity and eternity, applies to earthly matters for us, to spiritual matters for spiritual angels, and to heavenly matters for heavenly angels. Nor does it apply only to desires, perceptions, and information in general. It applies specifically to every element of them, even the slightest. These elements have this nature because they arise from the one who is intrinsically infinite and eternal, coming about by means of what is secondarily infinite and eternal. There is evidence... Oh, that's a pretty cool picture, right? Uh, the idea of... the Think about the good things, the, the best things you've ever thought and felt, like the best life experiences, the best impulses you've ever had, those growing and multiplying forever. And this is the picture of the human mindset growing on, at, even after this life into heaven, more and more uh, you can, there, there's a world, there's a whole world to fill. And that's the promise if we can get through the flood. So to use a tasteless metaphor, do you think we could flood YouTube with likes and subscribes right now? If you enjoyed this show at all before I made that last comment, please like and subscribe. That helps our channel a lot. It's a, it's a way to help us out. Another great way to help us out is to donate if you're so inclined. We're a nonprofit, so we are able to do stuff like this because people say this is worth supporting. So if you want to click that, make a donation, we would very much appreciate it. Now, as promised, we're going to get to our questions and comments. So we're going to take a look. We'll give you 10-second video break to get him in, uh, and then we'll take a look. All right, great. As always, this was a long one, uh, so, but we'll try to uh, get a few of these in. We actually had a couple of questions that were similar, so we're gonna let's take a look at them right now. Abel, why did God need to speak in such a very complicated, indirect way while he, when he could directly? I mean, if all histories in the Bible aren't literal, then does it mean we all need to have the same experiences that Swedenborg went through? And similarly, how will people really learn the Bible with all this symbolism if the Bible is not what it really means? 
I do think the Swedenborg got it, but I still don't understand why God bothered with the Bible. It's just way too abstract for anyone to understand. So the, the primary message is, why is this so confusing and weird? Why did you guys spend so long? No, but it's it's a great question. If look at look at this, we we spend an hour fifteen minutes flying through this one little story. Like we're saying, skipping a ton of stuff. Why is it like that? And I have a couple of thoughts on that. One is that. The Swedenborgian explanation for that is that it's a protection, for one thing. You see the way... Look, look at what organized religion has done to religious texts. I mean, don't you have these organizations using their scriptures to justify horrifying things? And you still have that, that it, if the, the actual truth is concealed, that spirit... Remember we talked about in the beginning... The feelings are what what really dictate things. They can corrupt the ideas. So even if you had like the naked truth of here, love everyone, do this, people were there. If they had a desire for control and harming, they would have taken those ideas and corrupted them and destroyed the ability of that truth. So this is almost like the outer sense of the Bible is a a kernel or like a or I mean like a shell over a seed that it's protecting it. That is one reason. Another is that actually, even in its, that there needs to be, check out our episode, What the Bible Is. This is one we released a few weeks ago. It explains a lot of this kind of stuff. It's also a foundational level. You can't have the inner senses of meaning without the external, because it needs to be in this symbolic language, so that it's on things all the time. There's actually a and almost a technology aspect of it, where when we're reading it here, even if we don't understand it, the angels do, and it does good things on higher levels. But uh, so those are a few thoughts. I don't know if those are satisfying answers, but there, this was Swedenborg's mission was: Wow, I've had these experiences. I'm going to dict. I'm going to show how to read this thing and give some examples so that we can start to dig into it. And but but it's not like it's not like you have to get nobody. You never guess this stuff. From the that you can start to see some parallels if you know what to look for, but you'd never just outright guess it. But you don't have to. We saw in our story what the Bible is. There was this angel waving a sword around, and that was a symbol that the literal sense can be turned in many directions as long as it's done for good. You have plenty of people who never heard of anything like this kind of symbolism in the Bible, yet they are using it for good. Like they take lessons from it and they use it for good. Finally. Swedenborg says there are certain places in the Bible that are very clear. Uh, you know, like Stuart, who works on this show, he loves this this Swedenborg passage. That there's the Bible is like a person who's mostly clothed, but there's the hands in the face, and that's that part. You can just see the skin for what it is. That's like the teachings: you know, love one another as I have loved you. Those kinds of things. That's the stuff people can pull from. You don't need. To, to have a PhD in Swedenborgonomics to know that. So those are a couple answers to that. Watch what the Bible is, that episode, what the Bible is. Okay, next one. Cameron, so no matter how bad evil they are, you will always have a good remnant, even in those wicked times before the flood. I believe so, according to Swedenborg. Nobody does not have some good state stored up in them by the Lord. The, even even those people, like they weren't their, their remnant couldn't save them from the the cravings that they have, but I don't think anybody doesn't have good inside them. And at the deepest level, God's love is our life. So there's always something good at the core. You you can't shut that out or else you couldn't live at all. So yes, the answer is yes. Next one. 
Liana or Liana, is this akin to a seed? It has to break apart to grow. What seems like destruction to the seed is actual birth. I, I think it's a great metaphor that this whole process is like that. The flood is like this. Everything's ending. Well, nope, we're going somewhere better. That, that Think about how much more a plant is than a seed. Like just a little seed. You could never fathom how great uh, what the kinds of things a plant can do, photosynthesize, grow, move even, some plants can, can grow towards light, etc. So that's like us, before, the, before we regenerate, we would have no idea what we can even become, but after this, you can grow like a plant. So that's great. Thank you very much. Okay, two more. Deidre, one of Noah's sons were cursed. Why and what was Swedenborg's take? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Let me look. <clears throat> ah, yeah, I actually have a, I have some <laughs> like a cheat sheet of like because there's so much more symbolism in the Swedenborg story. And just in case you guys went after any of that, I didn't even memorize it all for this. Noah's three sons represent three kinds of theology that rose out of the ancient church. Uh, the wives of those sons represent the goodness connected with the theology or the actual groups that apply to that. So, uh, as far as the why one of them was cursed, I don't even know. I'd have to look that up. You can look that up if you look at Secrets of Heaven, uh, and, and I'm not sure exactly what number that would be, but if you search Swedenborg's works, for the, you download the book and do a search for the name of that son, that should work. Um, but it, it, was, it had to do with the, the doctrines that came out of that church, and one of them was causing problems, so that's what that is. Okay, <laughs> pretty cool, me using my notes there. Lee, what about the giants after the flood? Oh, you mean like when they were going into the land of Canaan and they had sent those scouts and they said, oh, we're only like grasshoppers in their sights. I, I don't know the specific symbolism of those, but everything is symbolic, so I would imagine that those were another kind of corrupt mindset, but I'd have to look that up. I don't, man, I don't have that in my notes, but... Uh, it's got to be, and I don't know if he specifically comments on that. I would think so, but Swedenborg, because the Bible has so much meaning, he didn't cover the entire Bible. He just covers certain points, the book of Revelation, the beginning few books of the Bible. So I don't know if he got to that one or not. Uh, other Swedenborg people may know. Feel free to comment in the chat. Thanks for the questions. All right, speaking of questions, we just breezed through a few here at the end, but next week we're going to take it very seriously. We're going to have a panel here. We're going to answer your questions, so tune in for sure next week. We'll answer as much as we can of your live questions and comments, and uh, hope, hopefully I'll see you all then, and uh, thanks for coming.